and welcome to episode two of Pay No Attention to This Podcast. I'm your host, Bruce Hotman, union boss of the International Middle Child Union, founder of the Middle Child Party, commissioner of Middle League Baseball, and the world's leading middle child advocate. Since this is the second episode, you know what that means. My little podcast family had its firstborn. She was named episode one. And now episode two comes along, so it's the new baby. It gets all the attention until episode three arrives. So enjoy it while you can, episode two. You've only got a couple of weeks before episode three gets here. Then the party's over, and everyone will be calling you episode who? Oh, by the way, I wanted to clear something up. I know in the last episode, I said there would be a new episode every two weeks. And I was a little confused whether that meant this was a bi-weekly or bi-monthly podcast. So I looked it up, and the definition of bi-monthly is occurring or produced twice a month or every two months, which makes absolutely no sense because twice a month and every two months are two very different things. But according to that very wide-reaching definition, this podcast would be bi-monthly. But it gets more confusing because I also looked up bi-weekly, and that definition says appearing or taking place every two weeks or twice a week, which, again, are two very different things. How can there possibly be so much latitude? How can it be like an either-or thing? It makes no sense. But based on these definitions, this podcast would also be considered bi-weekly. So I can now safely say this is the world's leading bi-monthly, bi-weekly middle child podcast. I hope that clears things up. It'll be about every two weeks. Later in this episode, I'll be speaking with Dr. Catherine Salmon. She is a professor of psychology at the University of Redlands and co-author of the book, The Secret Power of Middle Children, How Middleborns Can Harness Their Unexpected and Remarkable Abilities. I don't know. That sounds like it's putting a lot of pressure on a middle child, if you ask me. Like we're being set up for failure. We have enough issues already, but I'll be talking with Dr. Salmon about her book and some very interesting mid-kid research she's done. Now, I ended the last episode with the official anthem of the International Middle Child Union, our very own version of Don't You Forget About Me. You can find it at the blog, smackdabblog.com, or at YouTube on the Smackdab channel and play it over and over again if you'd like. But the podcast opens with what some might consider the unofficial middle child anthem, Stuck in the Middle with You. It's by a Scottish folk rock band called Steeler's Wheel. It sold over a million copies. It was a big top 40 radio hit. And in 1973, it reached number six on the U.S. Billboard Hot 100 chart. The song is actually about a business dinner the band had with music industry executives. Those are the clowns to the left and the jokers to the right. So it actually has nothing to do with being a middle child, other than, I suppose, the fact that neither ever get to be number one. I'm working on getting our own original theme song, but this seemed like a nice placeholder in the meantime until I get sued or something. Before we go any further, I should mention that this episode of Pay No Attention to This Podcast is sponsored by Club Mid, the ultimate middle child non-inclusive vacations. Club Mid, where nothing is included, especially you. And by the International Middle Child Union credit card, featuring no interest and, of course, no rewards. Okay, I said in the last episode that I would tell you the story of how I found out I was a middle child. 
you know, it's not the kind of thing someone actually tells you. You don't get a notice in the mail or anything. There's no father-son chat about the birds and bees and middle children. You don't get a certificate. You kind of just figure it out. And, of course, by the time you do, the damage is already done. In my case, I found out by a poem. I wrote about this on a post at the blog called The Poem That Changed My Life. You know how poetry can really touch your heart? Well, this poem smacked me in the face. My mother clipped out this particular poem from Good Housekeeping or Ladies Home Journal or one of those magazines, and she taped it to the wall in the kitchen in the house I grew up in. And it stayed there till I was a full-grown adult. So I saw this thing all the time. It was called Middle Children. Middle Children by Mary Margaret Milbray. Middle children are used to giving in to the younger and the older. Middle children are used to turning soft, mild cheeks to the child who's bolder. Middle children make cheer their talent, smiling even through hand-me-downings. Middle children will play a willing audience for others' clownings. Middle children are open-hearted. Middle children will fetch and carry. Middle children don't need unspoiling. Middle children are nice to marry. I'd like to thank the talented Eleanor Handley for that beautiful reading. Eleanor is not a middle child, by the way, so that was very magnanimous of her. So here's what I always wondered about that poem. I know my brother was my father's favorite, and my sister was my mother's favorite. Even they won't dispute that. So why weren't there any firstborn son or baby girl poems taped to the wall? Was being a middle child that big of an issue? Was it something that needed special treatment? Was it a poem some kind of apology for landing the worst position in the family? Or maybe the poem was a secret message of support. You know, my parents' way of saying, you're our third most favorite child in the world. All I know is, every time I read the poem, and I read it a lot because it was right above the counter where all the knives and forks were, every time I read it, I found something even more disturbing about it. Middle children make cheer their talent, smiling even through hand-me-downings. Now, hold on a second. Is this how someone should find out they're wearing someone else's clothes through a poem taped to the wall? That's messed up. And it just got worse by the verse. Middle children will play a willing audience for others' clownings? Who could they possibly be talking about? What self-respecting middle child would tolerate someone else being the center of attention? I would never stand for such a thing. When I was a kid, I did everything possible to be noticed. I did puppet shows. I was a magician. I had a band. I have a middle child podcast, for God's sake. This poem could not have been about me. And I really started to wonder if this Mary Milbray lady had any idea what she was talking about. Middle children will fetch and carry? What is up with that? What am I, the family dog now? I'll just put on my pre-worn pants and go get the morning paper. Was that the only thing she could find that rhymed with nice to marry? I'm pretty sure my mother thought having this special poem hanging there would make me feel better about being a middle child. But until I saw that poem, I never really even thought of myself as one, or that it was something I might feel badly about, or needed to feel better about. So her plan totally backfired. For the rest of my life, I would always be aware of my status as a middle child, and wonder whether or not I grew up wearing my brother's old underwear. I finally had enough of this poem haunting me most of my life, so I wrote a rebuttal poem. Middle Children by Bruce Stephen Hopman 
Middle children don't need a poem in the kitchen of their home. All we want, I need to mention, is that you give us more attention. Middle children will whine and moan. It sucks being left alone. Middle children are sick and tired of siblings being more admired. Middle children don't get that stuff. Middle children have had enough. So take that, Mary Margaret Milbray. By the way, thanks to Michael Setau for letting me borrow his lovely voice for my poetic rebuke. Oh, and that is the sound of the pay no attention to this podcast hotline. As you can tell from the ringer, it's an old phone, so the quality may be kind of subpar. With me now is Dr. Catherine Salmon, professor of psychology at the University of Redlands and co-author of the book, The Secret Power of Middle Children, How Middleborns Can Harness Their Unexpected and Remarkable Abilities. How are you, Catherine? I'm great, thank you. Of course, you're great. I think when we spoke, you told me you're the baby of the family. Is that, <laughs> so, of course, yes. everything is yes. wonderful for the baby of the family. Yes, that's true. To be a pampered baby of the family is always a good thing. <laughs> so, so it was just you and an older brother. So in your experience growing up, you didn't have to deal with any middle children. You got to skip the whole middle child thing altogether. So, you know, lucky for you. My only experience of middles really uh, growing up was my father, who was the third of four boys. So this, so this was clearly your inspiration to then later grow up and research middle children. You just missed that experience so much that you had to have us in your life. So you decided to do some research. All right, before we go any further, let me just get this out of the way. I'm, I'm a little bitter about something. And in, in researching your book, you spoke to dozens of middle children for their input. Sure. So I've done research where I've collected information from middles. And then we also did a specific study for the book where we talked to middles about parenting behavior in particular. So you spoke to all these little children, but no call, nothing to me. You couldn't, I couldn't be part of the thing. I, I don't want to take it personally, but I am a middle child. How can I not take it personally? But all right, so one thing that did draw me uh, to your book, and I saw um, you and your co-author, Katrin Schumann, who I appeared on a, on a Huff Post panel with a few years ago, which was kind of funny because it was all these very smart people, psychologists and PhDs, and me. So um, that was you know, one of these things is not like the other. But the title of your book, when you look at a lot of other books out there about middle children, they talk about being a middle child like it's some kind of disease. So I appreciated the positive spin that you put on it. Because you're, the idea behind the book was to dispel many of the myths people have about middle children. Yeah, exactly. I mean, part of the thing was even when I was doing research, and, and initially I was looking at birth order in a very general sense. I was looking at all of the categories and how they influenced people's family relationships. And what I'd come across was all of these studies looking at things like stereotypes about birth order. And when you look at the stereotypes that people hold about birth order, there were no positive ones for middle children, like for firstborns or lastborns. And it's like the baby of the family. They get along with everybody. And, and it's like the firstborns, well, they're ambitious and, and, and all this kind of stuff. And then for, for the, the middle children, it says things like, well, they're, they're neglected, they're overlooked, they're envious. So when this one study that was done, I think it was at, it was at Stanford, and they looked at all these different stereotypes that people held. The only birth order that did not have spoiled as a stereotype was the middle child. You talk about these myths, and I find that interesting because one of the studies that you cite in the book said that lastborns were emotional, extroverted, irresponsible, 
and talkative, and that. But what they say about firstborns, most intelligent, obedient, yeah. stable, and responsible, and the middles were the most advanced, least bold, and least talkative, which could not be as if you couldn't already get a sense further from the truth in my case. <laughs> I I don't shut up. As a matter of fact, I was in a business meeting a few months ago, and before the meeting, I received an email from one of my coworkers that said, "Please, please." Please talk slowly and pause often so we can chime in. <laughs> so clearly that's not a problem. And I think the reason why it's not true that middle children are the least talkative is we never know if we're going to get a chance to speak again or if anybody's going to listen to us again. So when we do yeah. get the opportunity, we just want to make sure we get everything out there. Yeah, if you think about it, if you're a middle child, you've got an older sibling and a younger sibling, and the older sibling, they're more mature, they're older, they probably are used to sort of directing things and having people listen to them. And often, if the baby's really young, you know, everybody's worrying about whatever's going on with them because they're smaller. And it's true that in that sense, the middleborn tend to have to really work to make their voices heard in that sort of family setting. And so they, I think they are, that they're very strategic about that. So when the opportunity arises to make their opinions known. the moment. Exactly, exactly. I, I, my wife tells me constantly I'm interrupting people. And, I, again, I, I play the middle child card. Of course I am. Of course I'm interrupting. So let me ask, let me ask this question. In, in the book, you refer to middle child syndrome as, you, said the, you say, the so-called middle child syndrome. Are you saying sure. middle child syndrome isn't real? I think that, that the idea that there's some sort of pathology that affects all middle-born children in that sense, that no, that, that that's not the case. I don't think that, because to me, when people talk about middle-child syndrome, they're really talking about the idea that, that all middle children are handicapped somehow forever the rest of their lives because they were somehow ignored when they were children. And I don't think that that's the case. And I think, you know, one of the arguments we made in the book is that if you look at all these people who are middle children who've been incredibly successful, it's not that they've somehow been crippled in some sense by being a middle child. That doesn't mean that some children, if they often get ignored a lot by their parents in favor of their other siblings, that they don't necessarily, you know, it's not that they don't resent that, but it does, it's not something that colors their entire lives for most people. That doesn't mean that, you know, there aren't occasionally people where it has had a much more negative impact on them, but the majority of middleborns actually are better adjusted emotionally than people from some of the other birth orders and, and some of the clinicians that, you know, have people come in for counseling. Talk about how you see less, you know, neuroticism and, and less emotional disturbance in middle children, that they're less likely to need those kinds of services. And whether that's because they learn better coping skills when they're younger, because they kind of have to manage on their own, or whether it's just because they're more independent in general, I think it's unclear. But to me, that's an indication that there's not some sort of syndrome that's affecting them. Like, I don't like the use of that terminology. I think it, again, because it relates back to things like disease, it suggests that there's something in need of a cure about being a middle child. There's not a pathology that's associated with it in that sense. I think that there are characteristics that middleborns often share. And there are things that you could predict about their behavior based on that. And then there are advantages, like some skills they'll have that other kids might not, and some that they don't, right? That there are differences between them and their siblings because of the birth order, but not that these things are necessarily detrimental. And in a sense, that was part of the message of the book, that people shouldn't think that they're middle-born children, or if you are a middle child yourself, that you shouldn't be thinking that somehow this has hampered you. In other ways, it's actually given you advantages. That is true. I do know some middle children 
who have no apparent signs of middle child syndrome, and and I hate them for it, but but it is true. You're saying so it's not genetic, right? Well, I mean, you know, even birth order in itself, like I mean, really, it's not so much that it's a gen, it's a genetic thing. It's an environmental thing, right? You're born in a certain place in the family, and so your family environment is different if you're a first or a middle or a last. So, for example, if you if I was thinking, of course, in my brother's in my case, there's only the two, but. He was born into the family at a different time than I was. He was the only one at that time. There was a certain amount of attention focused on him. He was a firstborn boy. There were certain expectations for him. And then those things were different and maybe in some cases more relaxed, you know, seven years later when I came along. So that sort of early environment effect is one of the things that we're really focusing on when we think about how birth order affects people. It's really, you know, because everything is a mix of genes and environment, right? And so you know, obviously there's traits that you have that are a product of your genes, but then there are traits that you have that form in reaction to the kind of environment that you live in. All right. So, the, so then why middle child syndrome? If right. middle children have certain characteristics, firstborns do, lastborns do, how did we get so lucky to get the syndrome attached to us? How come people don't talk about firstborn syndrome? Or last-born syndrome. Mm-hmm. How, whose fault is it? I mean, one of the big curses of looking at the literature, all of the research that's been done on birth order, is so much of it for many, many years looked at first versus everybody else, which tells you that maybe a lot of those researchers were firstborns and thought that was the only important distinction. But it clouds what's going on because, you know, middles and babies of the family are not necessarily the same. But, yeah, many researchers often are, you know, people do research on what they're interested in. And so a lot of researchers have focused on that. But, you know, I think the other thing that that is one reason why people might tend to think that there has to be pathology associated with middles is the idea that we have these expectations about what firstborns are, that they're the high achievers or whatever, um, and the responsible ones. And then we have this idea about the easygoing babies of the family who are spoiled. And we think, well, there must be something missing then with the ones in between, and that must create some sort of pathology for them. Because we think that all of parental attention should be focused on kids all the time, and we think when it's not that that's bad. And I think that's probably wrong, right? I think that you can have too much parental attention and too much parental focus. And I actually think that, there, that that's one of the places where there's a real benefit for middles. What, what uh, people in general have thought of as being, well, they don't get enough parental attention and so they are resentful and that's why they have this syndrome, when actually they become more independent and probably stronger individuals as a whole because they've had less parental attention and supervision because nowadays parents over-parent and over-control their children so much to the point that it actually is detrimental for them and you have kids growing up and leaving home, and they don't know how to make their own bed. They don't know how to balance their checkbook. They don't even know how to get up in the morning and show up for work on time. Well, you've just oh, you've just described my children. Now I feel like a terrible parent. Um, <laughs> I, like I know my brother and sister will uh, disagree with me, and many people who know me uh, will be surprised. Uh, I actually think I'm the most well-adjusted in my family, so which is a scary thought. Let me just move on to one other area I wanted to talk to you about. I applaud the work you're doing, dispelling the myth of middle children and this discussion of middle child syndrome and what, what it really is all about. But And I will rail against it, you know, why us, why middle child syndrome? But on the other hand, I kind of like it because it's a convenient thing to have. Because when, when you do do something wrong, you could just play the middle child card. So I urge you in future research that you do, just pull it back a little. Because I don't want to totally blow everything out of the water. Because then you're going to take away a very useful tool 
for many <laughs> middle children. Now, let's go back to what you were talking about, this perception of firstborns as high achievers. For years, the world was under the impression that most presidents of the United States were firstborns. Sure. Well, I mean, the reality is is that a reasonably large number of them were firstborn boys, but that doesn't mean that they were the firstborn child in their family. Um, and if you actually go back and look at some of the, the sort of stories of individual presidents that get listed as firstborn presidents, you find out that, oh, they actually have, you know, older stepbrothers or they have older sisters in many cases, even though they might have been the first boy in the family. It's almost like the girls didn't count. And actually over 50% of American presidents have actually been middle children. So let me just be clear on this. The firstborn lobby or whoever's doing PR for the firstborns is so good at what they do, at spinning the fact. <laughs> the only way they could come up with the, the statistic that most presidents were, were firstborns was, oh, we're just not going to count any girls that were born before them. Then most of them were, I mean, that's, that's, that's some skills to, to, and then, but, but, but everybody was so willing to believe, oh, well, sure. yeah, firstborns, of course, they're the leaders, they're the first, they have all the skills. Yeah, and they assume, you know, if somebody's a CEO of a company, well, they must be a firstborn. And, you know, again, that was one of the things that we tried to do in the book was to point out, well, if you think that's the case, well, what about people like Carly Fiorina and Bill Gates and, the guy who started Dell Computers. These are all middle children, too. And they're very successful, you know, business owners and often very successful in some ways because they did things outside the box or they were thinking outside the box. And so they had new approaches to the way they did business in their industries. And that's also a mark of middle-born children is that they are good at thinking outside the box. Firstborns are really good at some aspects of that as well, like they tend to be socially dominant. And that can lead to success in, in business, certainly, too. But they tend to do better often in very traditional businesses that aren't in sort of states of flux or change. All these things you're saying, they're actually making me feel good about being a middle child, which is a very strange new experience for me. So I, I, I really need to just let this all uh, soak in. I, I don't want to get too used to it because I know it won't be long before I'll, I'll be feeling all crappy again. Hey, before you go, I have a game we play on the podcast called Guess the Middle Child. And as a middle child expert, I would like you to play around. Are you game? Sure, I'm game. <laughs> it's time to play nobody's favorite game show. Guess the Middle Child. Okay, Catherine, I'm going to play a clip of a famous TV middle child, and you have to guess who the middle child is. Don't be upset. It isn't that important. So dumb. Made a song look like a bunch of fools. Oh, you must hate me. I wouldn't blame you. All right, Catherine, do you know who that TV middle <laughs> child was? Um... I do not recognize the voice, but I'm going to make a guess, just because a lot of times, this is one of the ones that people use. Was it the Brady Bunch? That was actually Danny Partridge from the Partridge Family. Your credentials as a middle child expert are intact. You're just not a TV middle child expert, so we're, we're okay. <laughs> no. We're okay with that. This is definitely true. <laughs> I want to thank you so much for coming on. In appreciation of all you've done on behalf of middle children, I would like to offer you an honorary lifetime membership to the International Middle Child Union. You can proudly be one of the few non-middles in the union, so I hope you accept that. 
that I would be proud to accept that. Thank you. Okay. And, and I think this is the point where you're supposed to offer me like an honorary doctorate to the University of Redlands. Oh. <laughs> okay. We can, we'll, we'll, we'll deal with that when we speak again. Catherine, thank you so much for taking the time to speak to us. As you know, to a middle child, any attention is really appreciated. So thank you so much for spending the time. Thanks for having me on the show. Yeah, it's definitely time to upgrade the hotline. I will work on that for the next episode. But that's it for episode two of Pay No Attention to this podcast. I'll be back in a couple of weeks with more guests, more games, more middle child issues. In the meantime, if you have any comments or suggestions, you can reach me at paynoattentionpodcast at gmail.com or on Twitter at midkidmusings. Keep up with everything and anything middle child at the blog, smackdabblog.com, or at the Smackdab page on Facebook. If you like what you're hearing, please subscribe to the podcast and spread the word. And if you don't like what you're hearing, you could still subscribe, but just don't listen. I'm going to close each episode with some middle child music, and this time it's from legendary middle child madman Ozzy Osbourne. He earned his spot in the middle child attention-seeking Hall of Fame when he bit off the head of a bat in a concert in Des Moines, Iowa in 1982. Now, it was a dead bat, if that makes it any better. Someone threw it on stage, and Ozzy claims he thought it was a rubber bat, even though a year earlier... He allegedly bit off the heads of two live doves during a meeting with a record executive, so there may be a pattern here. After the incident, Ozzy said, I had to get rabies shots for biting the head off a bat, but that's okay. The bat had to get Ozzy shots. (laughs) Thanks so much for listening. I'll be back in a couple of weeks with another episode of Pay No Attention to This Podcast.